Ahoy, and welcome in to another thought-expanding episode of Not Allowed to Die, your podcast about mental health, where I, Dan Bagler, social worker and life enthusiast, answer your questions about mental health, drawing back the curtain on how this whole thing works of getting people help and support. Alongside me, as always, is Mariska, the three-toothed Patterdale Terrier. And things are bad for Mariska, and they're going to get worse because it is very cold outside, and there is snow on the ground, and there is salt on the ground, and she does not like to wear her boots. And all of these things contribute to Mariska having to lick her paws. And we know that beyond better boots, the one thing that will help Mariska more than anything is you rating, reviewing the podcast, following, making some comments, and telling a friend. When you do these things, even if she has to lick her little paws, it makes her feel so much better. It makes her feel loved. And that's what we want to share on this podcast. We want to share love and support. This, all my weeks are interesting weeks. This week started out with, missed my Monday because I had to go to jury duty. And I didn't get called. But I had the anxiety of sitting in a room down in Cook County Courthouse, Chicago, near the Cook County Jail at 26 in California. And there were 300 of us in this room, divided into groups of 20, I guess, or and waiting. Is your number going to be called? Every half hour or so, the clerk coming in and saying, number group 42, group 37, get your stuff, you're going to court. And time after time, waiting and wondering, is it going to be me? Am I going to have to go? So... I, my, my number was not called this time, but I missed a day of being at work, being at the school. So there were a number of students that couldn't come see me. And one student, he couldn't see me, so he went to one of my colleagues and he started opening up about his life. And she had never really had a conversation with him, so she reviewed confidentiality. She said, you know, you seem to be getting into some heavy things here. You know that I do have to report um, if you're going to hurt yourself or somebody else, that kind of thing. And he said, yeah, yeah, um, but he just kept going. And he plunged in and he talked about the fact that um, for most of his life, his dad had been ver- verbally very aggressive with him, but also physically aggressive and had hit him. And as recently as last week, they had gotten into a physical altercation where his dad punched him in the face. And so... You know, she reviewed with him, this is there, again, this is, I may have to report some things, but she didn't, uh, he left her office not realizing that she was going to have to make a report to Child Protective Services. And the question comes up, before she made the call, she talked to, I, I was back the next day, she talked to our supervisor, she talked to me, and she said, yeah, do you think I need to make this call? Because I feel so guilty, I, I don't, I don't like the idea of calling, um, uh, Child Protective Services, we call it Department of Children and Family Services in Illinois, without the student knowing that I'm going to do that. I don't want to be caught off guard. Well, we reviewed in what circumstances we're mandated reporters and technically, legally, to keep our licenses and it is anyone, even without a license, if you're a teacher or a cafeteria worker, anybody who works at a school, you're a mandated reporter. And you're required by law to contact if you even have the suspicion of physical or sexual abuse of a child by a caregiver. And that caregiver can be their parent, it can be anybody who is responsible for babysitting them, or a camp counselor, or anyone who is in this supervisory capacity. 
teachers for sure, if we're hearing about things happening, you know, at a school or a coach or anything like that. So this one on paper, super open and shut, duh, you have to call. And yet it doesn't feel like that when you're the one in the position. So then the next question that you ask yourself is, well, is the abuse likely to occur again? Like, can I work with this student? Can I make, can I see if, is right now the most appropriate time to report this abuse? Now, technically, you're not supposed to ask yourself that question. When in doubt, you're just supposed to call. But for any of us who have made that call, you don't always get a positive result. Often, the worker, if they do, well, I'll go through the mechanics of it, but if they do take the call and they go to the house and investigate, sometimes the parent and the kid will deny anything ever happened, and then the worker will leave, and things will get worse for that kid. And you could say, well, why wouldn't they just tell the truth? Well, sometimes they don't want um, their family and home to be disrupted. They often have, people often have a very irrational fear. Well, it's just an uninformed fear. that if they call protective services, that the children will be taken away and the parent will go to jail and things like that. And this is, that almost never happens. Um, so, but again, families don't know that. They're terrified that they, we just hear about social workers in the media breaking up families and taking people away. And you have to understand that the state has nowhere to put people. They don't want to take anyone away. They just want everyone to be safe. So this fear is though, if they go and investigate, will this actually make this child's life any better? And again, we're not supposed to ask ourselves that question, but we're human beings and we do. So she made the call with my supervisor that they did it together. Technically, you don't need anybody can report. So if you're out there and you're hearing what you think might be abuse at your neighbor's house or something else like that, you can call. And in Illinois, the number is 1-800-25-ABUSE. So 1-800-25-ABUSE. Or you can just Google it. What is the child abuse hotline number in my state? And if you call, they will ask you a bunch of questions. What you know, they want to know, ideally, the address, the names, the dates of these things that are happening. They want to know the ages of the people living in the home. And it's okay if you don't have those answers, then, you know, you just give what you can. But if you're going to be, if, especially if you are a person who works at a school, if you're a teacher or someone reading this, and you can get the information of the actual address and the phone numbers and whatnot of people you want to sometimes print that out and have it with you because often when i've had to call dcfs they have to they're just everyone's busy so they have to give you a call back later so i like to have that printout in my pocket so if they call my cell phone later i can answer those questions so in this case we called and then the next thing that happens before we inform before she informed the student is you don't know if they're going to just even bother to investigate. I've called DCFS in the past when a father punched his son in the face and uh, they said, well, was there a bruise on the student's face? And I said, no. And they said, well, how old is he? And I said, that student was 16 years old. And the worker who was listening to me said, well, they should have just ran away or gotten out of the house. And they declined to investigate any further. This can seem really callous. Um, and in a way it is, but their focus is really on younger children and wanting to protect. They're putting their resources in trying to protect the youngest kids first. 
and they're going to take everything much more seriously if the report is being made on a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old. Um, and they have seen, these workers have seen the worst things. You, that it's, it's a pretty terrible job to be have to go out and do this investigation work. Um, I'm glad some people are willing to do it. So when you're used to seeing cigarettes being put out on a three-year-old, and then somebody calls you up and says, okay, well, a 16-year-old got punched or slapped by their parent, it's not that that, yes, you should still think that that's important, but I, I empathize with some of these workers who are like, really? You're going to call me about that? And I have had workers on the phone just kind of act like, why are you wasting my time calling me? And in my response, I'm a mandated reporter. I have to do this by law. So my, co- my colleague called, and because perhaps there is a younger sibling in the home, because perhaps this student, it's been ongoing for a long period of time, and there was a great degree of likelihood that something might happen again. They decided, yes, we're going to investigate this. So someone in the next 24 hours will come either to the student's home or the investigator will come to the school and interview the student. And that's usually the next step. So we did not want this student to be blindsided by this information. And so called the student down and spoke with, with the dean, with my colleague and me, and explained, here's what happened and here's what's going to happen next. And he was furious. How can you do this? How can you do this to me? You guys are ruining my life. My father's going to kill me when he hears this, and I got to get out of here. And it was understandable. He was panicking. We did end up informing. Uh, well, he actually then said, I have to call my mom and let her know that this is coming down the pike. And so he called his mom. His mom called the dad. So in some ways, it was, it's good in that they were all informed in general, Child Protective Services tells us, don't pre-warn the family that this is coming because if people are going to lie, it's way easier for them to get their stories straight if and that for them to be able to coerce their child into getting on the same page if they know that it's coming. So even within my building, there's differences of opinion on should you call the family to give them a heads up. If your goal is to maintain a working relationship with the family and you're a mandated reporter and you feel like you have to report this even though you believe that probably um, you know it's not going to be founded or whatnot but you just want to give a warning then I think it's understandable that you would call the family and let them know but on the other hand if the goal is really to just allow the agency to do its investigative work then I typically would say nothing and I would, let, I would always inform the student that I'm calling on so that they are not shocked and surprised. And I often, though, won't inform them too far in advance. If I know, they usually, again, try to do within 24 hours. But if I, I just don't want them up all night wondering and waiting and worried of what's going to happen and what's going to occur. So when the investigator does come, they, again, ask, how often is this happening? What are the circumstances? Are you afraid to be at your home? This student was saying, hey, I'm afraid to go home now. So we had to review what are the options if you are afraid to be at your house and you're 16 years old? Well, if you have relatives nearby, usually what will happen if, for any person, if you're you know, under the age of 17, if you're 17 and over, you can just kind of leave your house. And even we think of 18 as the magic number where you can just uh, determine where you want to be. But at 17, you're in this really strange legal area 
where you're not yet legally an adult, but you do have the right to run away. And if you're over 16, your parents do have the right to lock you out of their home. So if you are having what they would call incorrigible behavior, where you just cannot be managed and you're not listening, or even if you just break curfew, your parents have the right to lock you out and say, nope, you're not home by 11 o'clock. We're locking you out and you can sleep on the street. So that means that after a certain point, they cannot, the police will not, especially at 17, they will not legally force you to return home. So let's say you're the 16 year old and you feel unsafe returning to your home. You can go to the police department and typically they will call in some sort of crisis social worker to try to negotiate with your family to make sure you can be in a safe place. And their first objective is always to get the parents consent to have you be in the home of a relative or the home of a neighbor where the neighbor has consented and then you can stay there temporarily until some more counseling or whatnot has gotten into the picture to help everyone to be calm. So in this case, the student, the mom came in and they were willing to, mom was even willing to let the student stay at a friend's house, but they couldn't, in such short notice, they couldn't find a friend whose parent was, the friends were willing to have him come over, but we couldn't get confirmation from a parent of a friend that he would be welcome there. So he talked to his father then, and the father said, no, I'm not going to hurt you if you come home. This is all overblown. And so um, the father agreed, absolutely, you will be safe. And both mom and the student and everyone was given resource officer numbers. So if anything did go wrong, then there were people that they knew to contact if the father did become angry to the point where it became physically violent. There were people involved because then our our school security person was involved. There are people involved who are questioning, is who's telling the truth here? Is the student telling the truth and the parents are just covering up and lying? Are the parents telling the truth and the kid is just making things up to manipulate and to avoid? When you're thinking about, should I call or should I not call? You don't need to make that determination. If you have suspicion, you can go ahead and call. And if the kid was lying and manipulating, if he was just trying to avoid some consequence in his home, then he's learned a valuable lesson that if I do that, if I cry wolf, then people are going to take it seriously. So it's always the right move in that circumstance to call Child Protective Services. But there are situations and times where it might not feel like the right move. I had a teacher at the school, a special education teacher, and we have a student who is often not coming to school. And he made a suicide attempt about a month ago. And he took an overdose of his medication. And the teacher asked me, is this a DCFS call? Because the student had access to this medication and was just able to potentially overdose on it. And I said, no, absolutely not. Because it is very typical and normal for, again, a 15-year-old student to be able to have access to their own medication. Now, after, if the, if the student had told the parents, I'm going to kill myself by taking my medication, and then they had left it out near him, that might be some grounds for neglect. But in general, that worker is going to come and say, well, did you know that your child intended to do this? And these parents would have said, in truth, absolutely not. We had no idea. So there was no willful neglect. These are parents who love their child, 
they're just not sure how to handle his depression. And we can, on a, we may do another episode on school refusal and how those, what to do if your child is just, they, all, very frequently in school refusal situations, there is an actual physical health issue from stomach pains to migraines to even had a student who had back surgery or whatnot. And once they get into the pattern of not going to school, it can become a hard pattern to break. So there's usually some legitimate health issue combined with that. But not going to school is not abuse. And if you are a parent, it's also not neglect. Now, some people will ask, well, isn't there like truancy officers and things like that? And that is all highly dependent county by county and how likely they are to enforce that. When you get to the high school level, they, the, typically the main form of enforcement for truancy is a $75 ticket to, that goes to the parents. <laughs> so it's not a huge motivator to get the kid going to school. It implies that the parent has to be the one to get their kid moving. So if we know that the parent is already trying. And that's, I guess, when we think about abuse and neglect, is the parent and the people around the student really trying genuinely at their best? We have another student who, there was a question of whether we should call, she often has to stay up till late at night because she has to care for her younger siblings because her mother has very severe depression and often goes periods of time where she can't work, she can't make meals for the kids, she can't do a lot of the caretaking. And so that falls onto this 15-year-old daughter to take care of her seven and four-year-old siblings. Is that neglect? Well, according to the state, probably not. That 15-year-old is capable of being a caregiver to them. It just stinks that she has to then do all of her homework after the kids have gone to bed and clean up the kitchen and do all this adulting. It's not abuse. It's not neglect. It's just a hard life circumstance. And can we also try other things to put more supports in that family's life? Yes, and we should. But and often, if DCFS does get called and they did decide to take a case, what they would typically do is try to offer some more counseling and support for that circumstance. Another case where I have not called and probably by the letter of the law should, is I have a student who has not directly stated, but has given me reason to suspect that they were physically and potentially sexually abused by their father. And their father and mother are divorced, but still live together for financial issues and reasons. And the student really wants father to move out. It just makes them feel terrible living with their father. And yet, they talked to their mom and they said, hey, I, why, why can't we get him to move out? And their mom leveled with them and said, if your father moves out and moves back to their home country, then we will not be able to make it financially, we can't pay the bills. We don't have enough money. And we would have to move out of our apartment and out of this community, and you'd have to go to a different school. And so as detestable as it is, can you hang on for a couple more years and live with him? And so she said, you know, I, I said, because I could, I worked with the student to say, I could, if you really want your dad out of the house, I could make this call. I mean, you haven't told me anything yet, but I'm sure a couple more things, if you told me, we could make it so that your dad has to move out. And she said he would just go back to our home country and he would never face any sort of prosecution or things like that. But then we would be in a worse situation. So 
I try to work with my students and I try to work with them with any kind of thing that a person has suffered. I want them to have volition. But often, like that young man who was being hit by his father, we had to take that out of his hands. And our dean did a great job of saying to him, this can't continue. And even though it might be upsetting your family dynamic and situation, we can't allow you to keep enduring abuse. These situations are never easy to parse through. So what I would say always is if you're dealing with one of them, do what my colleague did and consult. Talk to other people to try to figure out what the right move is. But never just sit on the information. If you have reason to suspect physical, sexual, any kind of abuse, neglect, anything, don't just keep it to yourself. Even if you need to talk to a neighbor of yours, just don't share all the names of the people involved so that you can get another person to give you some perspective. Because making these decisions on our own is rarely healthy and it can be toxic to just keep it inside. So if you have questions about the ethics or when to call Child Protective Services, remember you can email me at daniel.makler at live.com. And from Mariska and me, do whatever it takes to get you through this world. Remember, you are just not allowed to die. And now for something completely different. Sometimes there are no words. Sometimes we need love, care, support, and affection. We don't want to explain anything. For young people with mental health issues like anxiety, depression, OCD, autism, therapy is often not enough. Paws for Patrick is an organization dedicated to connecting the love of animals to the people who need it the most. We facilitate that connection by assigning the seekers who contact us a wish granter who listens to their story and their needs and helps them acquire an animal or training or documentation so they can have their emotional support animal or ESA in their apartment, dorm, condo, etc. We even have trained therapy dogs and handlers who bring dogs to people who can't have their own. Patrick rarely had the words to express his feelings and his needs, but when he had the love of his dog Cece, he had the strength to persevere. We want to provide every young person who could benefit that kind of love and support. Please check out our website at pauseforpatrick.org. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a need, reach out. If you want to help become a volunteer, fill out the form on our website. If you can donate, great, but please at least spread the word so we can replace the suffering in silence that many people do with the smiles and security that only the love of an animal can bring.